Okay, we left off with a monumental passage in the whole of New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, where, not given a lot of context because we've covered it, Paul says, for, for the love of Christ constrains us, he says, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all are dead. If one died for all, then all are dead. And we spent some time talking about how Paul says, since or because Christ has died, then all have died. Not because all have died, spiritual deaths, Christ died, but the reverse. Because Christ died, all have died. And to me, the implication is that in the victory of Christ's death, he has vicariously taken the world with him to the grave. And we find ourselves having had our debt for sin paid by him entirely. Past, present, Adam to today paid for the debt. But we also notice that Paul does not stop with talking about the debt payment being paid for all. But he adds then at verse 15, and that he died for all, ready, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So I suggested that it is one thing to have Christ having died on the cross, being buried, and, uh, and all of us being buried with him in his death. That for all, it says. And we talked about all the passages that talked about him doing that for all, Right? the free gift that reconciled the fallen world to God, but that this is only the beginning of what is offered the world through the life, death, and resurrection now. Now we add resurrection to the whole mix of his son. That his resurrection then from the grave, which is emblematic of rising to new life as a believer, is also available to all, in this life, and it's there for the taking. It comes by faith. So in the reception of this, we discover a world of difference between all who have died with Christ because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Christ died for the sin. Therefore, all have died with Christ. The world died with Christ. And those, or they, as Paul puts it, who now live with him, the, those few who rise with Christ's resurrection and walk in his resurrection as Christians, you see. So, in fact, it's a night and day difference. We're here, night and day, and where last week it sort of sounded like I was pitching for a universal heaven because Christ died for all sin. Um, where all are equal no matter what, that would, have been a, that would be a grave misinterpretation the furthest thing from my mind. But we have to start off with what he says. Because Christ died for all, all have died. Um, because the reason I say it's a grave misinterpretation is because Paul greatly differentiates between all who have dead, all who have died because of Christ, and they who then live through him and his resurrection. There is a night and day difference. Again, he says at verse 15, and that he died for all, ready, that they which live 
should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This morning we talked about these passages a bit because we're talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And Dave pointed out that it seems like Paul is speaking of those who are alive here and now, not the resurrection in their life. And I think that's true. Um, Because of my views on eternal punishment and total reconciliation through Christ and the fact that we are living in a kingdom age where all go to a heavenly abode, but not all go to the new Jerusalem, uh, if I'm understood, it's probably going to be on this point, which is while all have died with Christ and been reconciled to the heavenly realm because hell and the lake of fire has been done away with, in no way suggests the removal, the erasing of the very biblical principles of reaping what we sow, uh, of afterlife reward, of membership in the new Jerusalem, or of um, the marked difference between those who are sons and daughters of God through faith and his resurrection and those who have merely had their sins wiped away because he died for them all. There's a huge difference, night and day difference between those groups. So the scripture, more than almost any other principle, makes it clear that afterlife status of each could not be different. It's, it's clear all the way through to the end of Revelation. Not to the end, but to Revelation chapter uh, 21. It's clear that there's a difference between those who have had their sins covered and those who are sons and daughters or children of Christ. So it's to this category of men and women who rise up now with Christ. It's not that they just die with Christ, but they rise up through his resurrection that Paul now speaks. Very different category. And it is radical and meaningful and very pertinent to, uh, to today, to, watch, to, to today's walk. If the principle of reaping and sowing is the same, if God, he does keep that principle alive, which I don't see why he would change that, then it's, it's, it's in place. See, while sinners, who are all of us, have died due to sin, wages of sin is death, and lay in the grave with Christ, uh, having been slain for the sins of the world, again, which is for all of us, children of God in Christ then rise up from that grave and participate in his resurrection. And uh, here and now, that is what we are doing. When we came to faith, it's be, we came and realized that he died for our sin, And we are then given the spirit to new life and we're walking in his resurrection. And that is the marked difference that I see in scripture between those who have had their sins paid for by Christ universally and those who are his here and eternally. Those who are his walk, rise from that grave and walk in his resurrection. And while I do think that there is some great meaning in all being dead because Christ died, Uh, and that we are no longer dead in sin because of Adam. We are no longer dead in sin because of Adam. We are dead with him. That is what it says there. That's what Paul says. We're not dead in sin. Sin's been taken care of. We're dead with him, right? I think there's a difference. And in this, there lies a hope and a promise since Christ does not lay in the grave dormant forever. Um, 
there's something far, far, far more meaningful in his resurrected life and us participating in that as believers. So this principle is reiterated all over again through the apostolic record. So before we move forward into this discussion, I have mentioned how most evangelicals understand verse 14, where I see it as a fantastic distinction from being dead in sin, which they talk about and preach as if it's a reality today, even after Christ has paid for the sins of the world, past, present, future, 2,000 years ago, they still preach you're dead in sin, you're dead in sin, you're dead in sin until you are regenerated. But Paul says, no, we're all dead with him because one died, all are dead with him. So um, the Christians today seem to just refuse to see how Christ has stepped in and done his work. They seem to step in as he stepped in and did his work, but it's not applicable to the world until the world believes. And so they, they revert back. They like skip. They say, because of Adam, you're dead in sin and you're acting like he didn't die for the sin of the world. And then when you believe on him, then you can say he died for the sin of the world and it's applicable to you. I think that what he did for the world, as we pointed out last week, was done for the world. And so the only the distinction I see between most evangelicals and what I'm saying is that they still want to tell people they're dead in sin. I believe that we're dead with him, that it's been paid. And so the net result of that is that people go and they go to God uh, with sin having been paid, but it doesn't mean that they are fruitful or have anything to offer God for their life. So there's a huge difference now in this second part. What does it mean for the Christian who, having been dead with Christ, rises to new life and walks in the resurrected Christ in their life? That is what we want to be concerned with. It's not that we want to be concerned with the sin that's been paid. We want to be concerned with what do we do as we walk with Christ in his resurrection. So, I mean, if Christ died for the sin of the world and never resurrected, he too would have been overcome by sin and the interpretation would be correct. We died with Christ, but that's it. But I don't liken the spiritual and physical death of all because of Adam's sin to the same thing as being dead because Christ died. I see the latter as being significantly different. One reason is because Christ paid for the sin on the cross. That's where he paid for the sin on the cross with his life, which was then, which was taken and he was buried then, right? And so with it happening on the cross, it says to me that all sins have been paid for in full, not some partial deal that other people talk about. Secondly, to be dead because Christ died versus dead because Adam sinned are two very different things. And they are different sources or reasons for being dead. That's not to say that we're not dead. We're all dead till we come to rise with Christ in his resurrection. We're all dead. But how we're dead is different. And that's why I'm able to, with Revelation chapter 20, say that hell's been cast into the lake of fire and Satan and everything else. Because those applications don't have any room anymore when it's been taken care of. So I suggest that to die with Christ is a step in the right direction. And it's a direction God supplied for the world, for our benefit. This was free substitutionary death. 
The wages of sin is death. Christ paid it for us. Offered by the Son, and it is God's grace. That is His grace. That we are not going to be alienated. Uh, we are not alienated from Him for our sin that we inherited the nature from Adam. He's taken care of that. Blank slate. Done. Over. Given to all through the life and death of His Son. In fact, it extends even into the resurrection of his son, this grace, because all will be resurrected. We know that from scripture. So there's another benefit of Christ's life, death, and even his resurrection. All will be resurrected. Jesus taught that clearly. But Jesus said some to damnation and some to life eternal. There is when we start getting into the distinctions. Because of that caveat, there are some bodies that will be glorified and of different glories, apparently, according to what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, and others will be in bodies of damnation, according to the words of Jesus himself. And what that means, we don't know. Smith said, no body parts that can recreate children. But, and that's all determined by kingdom, but... It's resurrection that we seem to be talking about. What this means, we can only guess. Bodies of damnation, bodies glorified. We aren't told. So you'd have to conjure something up of your own imagination to put it in there. But we do know that all will be resurrected as a gift and benefit of God's grace. All sins have been paid for as a gift of, of God's grace because Christ paid for the sins of all. But then we are all left blank slates to decide, do we receive Christ? Do we walk in his resurrection? Do we add fruits of the spirit to that blank slate? Do we come forth bearing fruits, talents that we've multiplied? There is the difference between uh, what Christ has done and what he has not done. He doesn't force us to produce. And that's why we have such a plethora of uh, stories and uh, anecdotes and illustrations about bearing fruit throughout the New Testament. So I think it's safe to say that those who are alive in Christ here, who have risen from the grave with him here by his, by his resurrection, will receive that resurrection of life completely there. So let's move back uh, to here and now or to those whom Paul differentiates from all dead by calling them the they and saying they, but they which live. He says, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Verse 14, he just died for the whole world. All, he says, twice. Here, he says, unto them which died for them, but also rose again. In other words, to simplify it for the real Christian, Christ both lived his life, he died his death, he was buried, and he was raised, and he entered into heaven. That is the picture for all of us as sons and daughters of God, that we too come to know what new life is, we're buried with him in our sin, we rise to new life, and we walk as Christ, the Son of God, walked, filled with his Spirit of God, and doing what he did. That is the model of being a Christian. So Paul says, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto them which died for them and rose again. And so Paul has now shifted to believers, true believers, and describes them as they which live. 
instead of just all who died. Of course, referring to those who have been regenerated by the Spirit, born again, born from above, quickened as it were, rising from being dead with Christ to now walking with the risen Christ. Okay? Paul's advice to these is that they should not henceforth live unto themselves. We know what that means, having come from lives where we've lived unto ourselves. And even if we were Christians from a very young age, we know what it means to live for yourself. We know that. I've been watching what I eat for the past um, like six months and working out very, very carefully. And in the past month, I said, I'm going to eat what the heck I want for one full month. Today's my last month. My, my, my last day of that month. I've been living to myself, believe me. I've consumed whatever I wanted, totally lived to myself, rather than watching carefully. So if you use that example, the same thing can be said of the Christian. They don't say, I'm going to eat, in terms of doing what we want, whatever I want. We don't do it for ourselves. We live to Him. We're walking in His resurrection. And, and so... We should not live unto ourselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And here we enter into a series of concepts related to the born-again Christian, which obviously are not automatic. They're obviously not something that happened without any sort of instruction. If they were, then Paul would not say you should and you should not do this. He's providing instruction to Christians there who have been regenerated, who have risen with Christ. But he says, and in that state, you should not live to yourself. Well, we have an apostle giving direction to people who have been born again. So we know that it's not natural as a Christian born again to suddenly just die to yourself. Paul is actually telling them how they should and should not live. And because there is apostolic instruction to believers, I see this as meaning that there is a choice for us as Christians. We come to see that Jesus suffered for the sins of the world. We're grateful. We fall on our face. Praise God. Uh, and even for those who are risen with Christ, we realize he resurrected and we're walking in his spirit. But there's still a choice on everything we do because Paul says so. As a, as a believer risen with Christ, you should not live unto yourself, but you should live with him. These instructions are beneficial, which is why we gather to learn and to hear what our options are and what is expected, what was expected of them then, should probably still be expected of us now. That's how I would see that. We don't naturally know how to be a Christian. So the overall principle winds up as being selflessness or selfishness. This is what he's coming down to, which is why Paul sort of summarizes his point by saying, those who live, who've been resurrected with Christ, should not live unto themselves, selfishness, but unto him, Jesus, who selflessly died for them and rose again. That's what the passage says. It's sort of like those who are dead with Christ lay in their state of reconciliation and are, let's just say they're pleased to know, yeah, Jesus paid for the sins of the world. Let's say everybody on earth knew that. And most of them just lay there in that grave. Yes, he paid. I'm, if that's our message to them, the good news, Jesus loved you and he paid for your sin. That's great. Boom. I'll just lay here and languish in what Jesus has done for me and do what I want. 
Paul is saying, no, we rise from that position now. And then we don't live to ourselves, but we live to him who died and rose from the grave on our behalf. Uh, they, those who are laying there have not been animated. They haven't been regenerated. They've received the benefit of God's grace on their life. They've received the fact that he has wiped out their sin and then through his son, but they continue to exist in the selfish flesh. From the flesh, somehow knowing, because all know according to Romans 1, in their mind that there's a better way. There's a way that's calling to them. Um, but they refuse to see it. They refuse to receive it. They refuse to hear it, whatever it is. That doesn't erase the fact that Jesus has done what he's done. That doesn't erase that. That has been done. And that's why I relish in the victory of Christ we all have in him. But this is why we preach on Sunday. This is why I continue on. Because I am, I am convinced that the reaping and sowing is intrinsic to being a true Christian, which is what Paul is describing here too. We're all dead, but they who live should not live to themselves, but should, and I think there is a reason to get with each other and talk about what this is. Those who are raised to new life because of Christ, they abandon in part and over time their former natural woman, their former natural man. And they leave them dead, to mix metaphors, and they rise to new life spiritually with Christ's resurrection, and they walk selflessly as he did. So where the overall topic is selfishness and selflessness, the subtopics to that are apparent. We have you know, our own fame, our own wealth, our own well-being. We have the benefit and wealth and health of, of him and others. We have uh, the world. We have uh, his kingdom. You know, there's, there's this constant duality we're faced with. We have our former flesh, which is constantly crying for us to do what we want. Go on a one-month spree, Sean. Eat what you want, right? And then we have the life in the spirit, which says, you know, control yourself. Let the spirit guide you and move you. We have our old identity. Yeah, I remember uh, Jim. He was the biggest partier, dude. And then all the other kids said, yeah, rock on, Jim. Remember when you downed that, almost that keg? Oh, I know. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That was such a radical time. They're living to their old flesh, but they don't take on the new and rise and walk with Christ in who they have become. They, there's fruitlessness in terms of the blank slate. They're not adding anything to that. With a Christian who have risen in life, they're adding love and all the descriptions of love to that blank slate of who they are. They're changing with him. And there's living works and there's dead works. You know, you can go to any religion where people haven't been regenerated and risen to new life with Christ, and you're going to find all sorts of religious people, and they are living to the religious ways, but they are just producing dead fruit. They aren't producing the fruit of walking in a new life with Christ. So as God is the one who rewards all with a resurrected body according to his good will, 1 Corinthians. God rewards all with their resurrected body according to his good will. And as it is the house that we will inhabit through the eternities, and is it that Paul says he hopes for a better resurrection? Those are his words, not mine. And since we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that not all resurrections are equal, 
There are resurrections that are sown in this and look like that. There are different glories in the heavens. Just so is the resurrection, he says. We know there are different resurrections. I would suggest, this is how I see all of this information coming down. I would suggest that those who remain dead because of Christ's atonement for them are rewarded according to whatever eternal fruit of goodness they have allowed themselves to do in this life. The sin's been wiped away. Death and hell have been gone away. Satan's been gone away. They are left with, what did you do with your life? What did you do? And um, those who rose up, however, that's you guys. Those who have rose up with him to new life, who did not live according to their former flesh, did not feed themselves, will be rewarded commensurately with the resurrected body they receive from God. Better resurrection or lesser, more glory or less, abiding in certain ways or not. Paul's going to take us forward on this idea of who and what we will be as Christians now when he launches us in this different radical concept. Ready? Verse 16, chapter 2, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Wherefore, in light of everything I've just said, wherefore, in light of the fact that we've, been risen, we've died with Christ, we're raising, raised to new life by virtue of his resurrection, henceforth, wherefore, henceforth, from this point forward, Paul says, know we no man after the flesh. He says, yea, which means, in fact... Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. That line, wherefore henceforth, from this point forward, know we no man after the flesh, says so much about what Paul is saying. I'm going to take it the way I see it. May God correct your minds if I'm wrong. But what exactly does he mean when he says to those believers at Corinth that from this point we know no man after the flesh? Think about this. He said in 14, all are dead. Because Christ died, all have died. All. And he uses all several times there. If all are dead because Christ died, and Christ died for our sin that was placed on him, and the wages of sin is death, then we do not look at the sin nature of anyone anymore. Getting too radical for you? They, as members of the world, have had those sins remitted and paid in full by Christ. He died for those sins. Substitutionary death. They have died for those sins through Christ as, a, as the grace of God has made it. It's radical. Paul says it, not me. Therefore, we know no man after the flesh, whether our flesh or their flesh. We don't know ourselves by this flesh. We don't know others by their flesh because we're in flesh. Instead, we see all people as either dead in Christ because all are dead in Christ with sins paid or as those who have risen with Christ and now walk in his resurrection from the grave and are walking in new life. 
That is how we see, according to what I think Paul is saying. Now, this is where people really differ. I, you can differ. You could be right. But I don't see it your old-fashioned way of seeing it. I see Christ as having had victory. I see that age over. He's writing that when the age is still going on. I see us as out from under Adam's sin because of Christ. He actually came between us and Adam. I don't see that former old school, you're dead in sin and all this. I see Christ as having paid for that sin. But I do see the need for anyone who cares about knowing God to rise up with him in his resurrection. This is the worldview of Jesus having had victory on our behalf. And the other views of antiquity, I'm saying, should be abandoned because I think they're out of harmony with what Paul says. When we step back and believe ways that would assume Christ has not had the victory. Let me reiterate this. When we step back and we assume that we're living at a time where Christ has not had the victory. And that's what anyone's doing if they are arguing with this point. They're saying, well, he had the victory, but not totally yet. No, he had the victory. If you say he's had the victory, then say it. If you say he hasn't, then say it. But don't him and ha, well, he has, but he hasn't. He either has, and I think he has. That's what his blood being shed on the cross was doing, having that victory over the grave, over sin, over death, over Satan, over all of that, right? Then we would be looking at all people according to the flesh if he hasn't. And we would be in an age where we should be saying, that guy, sinner. That Christian, sinner. I'm not so sure they're even saved. I don't know about their faith. Their works are not right. And we would be doing that. And guess what? That's what we do. And we've missed the mark. He's a sinner. She's divorced. They're gay. Uh, they're, uh, he's a thief. And worse yet, that's a carnal Christian. And I wonder if they've ever really been saved. We love that one, right? So in light of Jesus' finished work, these things cannot be. Do you see what happens if you start to see your faith in terms of his finished work, of everything being done by God through his son to wrap everything necessary up, to reconcile the world of sin to himself and then make the blank slate just like Adam and Eve had with the second Adam clearing the way and them being able to choose how they're going to go and then be responsible for it when they die? That's what Christ has done, you see? So in light of Jesus' finished work, they cannot be, folks, so much so that Paul here himself tells the believer at Corinth that they are to no longer know any man according to the flesh. I don't know how you're going to get around that one. I think this is a really, really important when believers are in engaging with the world today that we don't look out and say, look at all those sinners. God, I can't wait for the rapture. Like one good sister told me, I can't wait for it because I'm going to rise up above everybody, look down and say, I told you so. That's almost a quote given to me right back in that corner. Or we, you know, I can't wait for Jesus to come. So everyone's going to burn in hell. He's had the victory. So they are dead in sin. Don't get that. They're not dead in sin. They are dead with him. God is not so angry with them as we want to believe still. Look at the drunks. Look at this. Look at that. Paul says, no, no man after the flesh. 
No man, he says. I take his words. So why would, why would we? All flesh has gone to the grave for the sin. To me, and because of Christ, we see all people as either those alive in Christ, walking with him, having been resurrected with his resurrection, and or dead with Christ, having had their sin paid for by him, but still spiritually dead. Not a good place to be, to, to die and be spiritually dead and not have risen with Christ. Not a good place to be. Not something you want to go to God before. And I think at that point, that's when uh, knees are going to uh, bend and break and people are going to say, I, you know, but it's not this, oh boy, are you in dead trouble now? You know, because of what he did. In the end, it's all Christ, you see. So truly, there are the walking dead, we might say. Uh, but they are not dead in sin. They are dead with him, if he's had the victory. Except that you'll start seeing things in a different way, the way Scripture can say it. You can read it the other way, too. But Scripture does say that. This change in view will allow those who walk in newness of life, that's you and me, to walk in newness of life, to shine love and light on all who are dead with him. They are dead with him and we shine love and light upon them and they rise to new life in him, right? But if you approach them with you're a sinner, you need to have what I have or you're going to hell forever and ever, they do not calculate what that means. They don't have spiritual minds to get it and they think you're an idiot and they would never follow a God who is like that in the first place. I don't follow a God who's like that in the first place. What God has done has made it so that we can offer up to them in love the goodness of the gospel, not something that they cannot get that makes an us versus them. And what have we seen in our world? I got an email from a guy in uh, Sweden, Michael, uh, my brother. And it's this uh, thing. I can't remember what it's from. I'm going to share it on our show, but it just talks about how our youth, and I've been talking about this, are running from the faith. They are running from the faith. Why? Because it, this way we've done it does not match up. They see their neighbor next door who has no idea who God is, who's kinder than the God they've heard from the Christian mouth. That makes no sense. These kids are, are hearing uh, resistance to all the rhetoric we've poured out there in the name of God using the Bible literally in many ways, and the kids are saying no more, and the statistics, the Pew reports are showing the kids are running from the faith more than any time ever in history. Because we're, it, the, the way that we've approached it is not holding uh, water. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If the way didn't hold water and the Bible supported that way clearly, I would stand for that way, and I'd say, youth, too bad, you babies. Buck up. But I don't see that. When I read the scripture as someone who wasn't raised in Christianity and I'm reading it, I see a God who took care of things for us through his son. And I see us as responsible for the lives we choose to live now with the blank slate. This change will help us to help others grow and come up out of that deadness of uh, being dead with him and into new life with him. Just as important, believers are to also see themselves with this new identity. 
We don't look in the mirror and see our former flesh. That's why Paul said, see no man after the flesh. That includes yourself. Do not see yourself according to the flesh. Why? Because that is not who you are. We are not our flesh and bones. Our resurrection won't be our flesh and bones either, by the way. We are not our flesh and bones. The flesh is not good. It will never be good. It will always disappoint. And it will always be in opposition to the spirit. Those are biblical tenets I just passed by you. So if you think you can look in the mirror and one, be like, you are such a bad guy. That's wrong. Or to say, you are such a good guy. That's wrong too. Because that's not you. When you go to the grave, what will rise up from that grave will be the you that was covered in this flesh. That's the you you want to be careful about, who you want to think about, who you want to feed and give life to. So when the flesh rises up, we don't see ourselves according to that flesh. That is not our identity in Christ. We've all died with him, but especially Christians, you've risen to new life. So what your flesh will do has no bearing on what your spirit and person is. I would suggest that when a believer focuses or recognizes themselves by their flesh, they are paradoxically living by their flesh. And they're contradicting this advice that Paul says, no man, no, no man after the flesh. This worldview also applies to how we see each other in the church. Um, how often we see and evaluate others according to their flesh. Uh, to what we see and observe in each other, Paul makes it clear that that visible stuff is not how we're to see them. We are not to see another person by that flesh, uh, which we're supposed to see them by that which is eternal, which he says is invisible. So when we look at somebody, in fact, Jason shared with us the other day when he talks to somebody, he's looking off to the side at what that person really is and not being beguiled by their physical thing. I mean, just think about that. that that's a unique thing. When you're looking at a disfigured person, you're looking at someone who's lost all their limbs, someone who's facially disfigured, someone who has, suffers disabilities. Is that them? That's not them. So if we see them as that, that's futile. And so Paul says, look, don't even see each other by the flesh. See each other through what Christ has done in the world. As regenerated Christians, we are to see others not in the flesh, not as their flesh, but according to the fact that Christ has had the victory in their lives and is leading and walking in their true identity as those who have resurrected with him. And this is how we should see them. So when I've had Christians in the past uh, come to me for one reason or another and confess sin, it's an interesting thing. We've talked about this before, but I am quick to remind them that is not you that sins. That's your flesh. Your spirit who rose with Christ cannot sin, John says. It's impossible for that person that's going to heaven who's been forgiven by God to sin. It can't. That person can't any more than Christ can because it's Christ who's with you. So when you say, I did this, you're saying what I did was I allowed my flesh to reign over your life. I did, okay? And you allowed your flesh to, to reign, so you went next door and you had relations with the, the, the dog, 
next door. Uh, you want to tell me that's Christ in you that did that? That's not Christ in you that did that. That's your carnal, ugly flesh, brother, sister, whatever. So you are looking now to then feed your spirit that becomes stronger than your flesh and you live by that spirit, which is your true identity. What am I supposed to do now? You're supposed to go to God and say, help me with my lack of faith. Help me with failing to love. Help me with growing in the spirit. Help me with moving forward past my flesh. Help me with stopping to allow this flesh, which is dead with you in the grave, to keep rising up. Help me to smack it over the head and let it fall and live by the Spirit, right? This is why Jesus said in John 6, it's a great passage. It is the Spirit that makes alive. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. That's his words. And... And then he says, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So he made it clear. Paul makes it clear in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. That which I would do, I don't do. That's which I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this? He makes a dualistic uh, distinction in a believer's life. There's the flesh person. There's the spirit person. The spirit person is your identity. That is what will go to God. Your Flesh will remain in that grave and corrupt and turn to dust and be eaten by worms and cast off. Which plays into how you should see your resurrection too, by the way. But I'm not getting to that yet. Know we know man after the flesh and he adds. You ready? You ready what he adds? He adds it. Yea, in fact, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth Know we him no more. Boom. We don't know him that way anymore. Now, we can step back and take, we can take this in a number of ways, right? I'm letting the spirit guide me and how I, what it's saying. You can, you can disagree and you can go with any number of ways you can see this. But when Paul says, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more, I don't think he's saying, though we knew Christ when he walked the earth by the flesh, we don't know him that way anymore. One, because Paul didn't know him that way. So I don't think he's saying that. Another way is that the nation of Israel and some Gentiles expected Jesus to be a fleshly Messiah. So that they think Paul is saying, and though we knew him in our minds, prophetically speaking, as coming and being a fleshly Messiah, we know he's not that anymore. When we're the disappointed apostles with Jesus laying in the grave, being uh, crucified, and we're like, oh, he's not our fleshly Messiah. And then they see he resurrected and taught them. That's not what we're talking about anymore. That's, that's what many people will say he's saying there. But I think he's saying something very different. So they're tying it to being the son of David. No, we know him in the flesh. We don't know him that way anymore because he has transcended and moved into heaven. However, in light of verse 14, where Paul makes a comparison between Jesus' death and all being dead and Jesus' resurrection, then some living, I tend to see this illustration as carrying over to a literal interpretation of Paul here in verse 16, where he is actually saying that due to the finished work of Christ, we are not to know unregenerated people by their flesh. We're not to know ourselves by our flesh. 
We're not to know each other by our flesh. We're not even to know Christ by his flesh. That's what I say he's saying. That's what I think he's saying, all things considered. In other, word, in, in other words, and actually, whichever way you choose to see this, when it comes to Christ, Paul says, our conceptions and views of him should be changed. You can, we can agree on that. That's what he says. Whatever way you want to view it, forget mine, go with some traditional routes. He's saying, if you've seen him through the flesh, when you think of Jesus and you see him walking on the road to Emmaus and forgiving the woman and doing this and someone touching his garment and saying, who touched me in the crowd and, and healing the blind and his crucifixion, the Catholics, they focus on his flesh. They eat his flesh. They drink his blood. You're doing all that and all that and all that, which is also very religious. Uh, there's no need whatsoever to regard him according to the flesh, but to see him for what he is now, to see him what he has been and what he is doing now. That's the way to regard him because by regarding him that way and always remembering his fleshly walk, we will walk with him in the spirit instead of just constantly looking at fleshly things. Notice that even if Paul is referring to the error of seeing Christ as a material savior, it's irrelevant. Paul is telling the believers at Corinth to no longer esteem the Messiah in a fleshly or material sense, but rather in an eternal one which is the invisible sense, the invisible. They're not seeing him anymore as the redeemer of sin. How did he redeem sin? Did we watch it? It's invisible. He paid for the sin of the world. We didn't see it fall upon him. We just saw the physical effects. How do we know he's our Lord and Savior? He reigns over us spiritually, over a kingdom that was never of this world. My kingdom's not of this world. It is invisible. It's a new Jerusalem on high. So this is not saying that we have no mind for the life of Christ, but I would suggest that our view and understanding of him personally as we are growing and maturing in relationship with him shifts from the temporal life that he lived and refocuses on the spiritual eternal nature of his ongoing lordship for us in our life. And then we appeal to the things that he chose to conform our flesh to his will. So there's a lot to consider in this. Hear me out quickly. Jesus came to the house of Israel as their material Messiah. He walked among them. He taught them pretty much them only. And he was not a political savior in the least. He was not a ruler on, their, on earth for them. He didn't take over a reign and the Roman army fled from his presence. Um, but... Uh, he was the savior of the soul uh, from sin and from death for all those who received him by faith. For them, he had to be the son of David, material king. He had to be circumcised materially, actually, not in the heart the way we did because he didn't have to have that happen. His heart was okay. But his external flesh was not okay in terms of the law. He had to obey the law. It all makes for a tremendous backstory for God and how he reconciled this world to himself. It's tremendous stuff. But the reality is this physical ministry, while vital to everything God accomplished, which has, and it was necessary to redeem the world, all of the physical ministry, the physical life, 
and, and death, the blood, the decisions. It was three years long. It was three years long. It played a vital, cannot escape, always in the history of what God has done role. To make this our focus, though, to worship the fleshly Christ is to place our all on those things that pretty much related to the house of Israel. Pretty much did, when you look at it in context, at least. And to miss part of the point, and that part is the most essential part, which is, in other words, his focus to focus entirely on his flesh alone from birth to burial is to ignore that part that reflects why and what Jesus did to bring many sons and daughters to glory. His resurrection, his ascension, those are the things that stamp all that he did in the flesh as valid and which have true application to those who rise with him and walk. Certainly it's wonderful to understand he died and was buried and that the world was buried with him with its sin. But the, the important point that Paul is trying to make is we want to rise up with him. And so once he rose, this kingdom was certainly not of his world. His kingdom was reigned from on high. He walked, he walked in heavenly realms now with sitting at the right hand of God by the spirit of those who are his forever and evermore, 2,000 past years, right? And so he rose to new life and then disappeared to rule and reign spiritually over an invisible kingdom of believers. I would suggest that Paul is telling the people at Corinth to know that Christ who has left them materi materially and abides in them spiritually now to focus on that. Of course, always remembering his earthly walk, his teachings, even his death. Of course, I'm not diminishing that. But to not, but to not really know him in this manner any longer. To not really know him in this manner any longer. To know him in a better way now. Who he became, and I can, I'm going to say it that way who he became. Remember, he uh, learned obedience through the things he suffered, through the things he became, to who he is, to where he is presently. Because that is exactly where Christ ended up. If we believe in the living Christ, where is he now and where has he been? He's doing what was the full focus of all he did. So we look to the one in all he did, not to the one of all that he was doing. There's a difference to the life of believers in that. When you look to what someone was doing and live after that in your flesh typically versus living in the spirit to what someone did and is, there's a difference in the outcome. And I believe Paul is trying to get us to see that difference. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews touches on this concept, as you well know, when we covered it verse by verse. This is what he wrote. He said, everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. He says, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. Even those who by reason of use have their, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And that ends chapter 5. Now listen to what he starts off in chapter 6. Passages I, I don't have, you ever read on Facebook. I don't ever hear pastors talking about on the radio. I don't ever hear anyone talking about what he says next. He says, therefore, ready? Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Boom! What? 
What's he talking about? Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Not laying it again over and over and over again every week. Don't look to the fleshly Christ. Look to the new one. He says, so he says, let us go on to perfection. That means completeness, not perfection the way the Mormons say it. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith in Christ and of doctrines of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection from the dead and of eternal judgment. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ and all of this stuff. You know what that stuff is? It's called church playing. It's called come together and let's rehearse all the stuff that was materially done so we can play it out in our lives and you can stay a babe in Christ and you can never grow up and put on your big boy pants, big girl dress, and you can just wander around and have the spirit of Christ in you, which is love. And you can move forward in this love. That's where the perfection is. And you can stop looking at everybody in their flesh and are they Christian and they're not that. These doctrines that keep us as children playing in the, in the sand trap of doctrinal differences. Let's get and leave that stuff where it lasts. Where is that? It's in the foundation. It's there. We don't discard it. I'm going to liken it like this to you. And I know you've heard this, I think maybe even last week. Will you read the New Testament? The foundation is all this stuff that was laid for us already. We're building a high-rise business office. Once that foundation is laid, you're not going to think of it very much unless there's an earthquake. You're going to go up on the 27th floor to do your work. You're not going to think about the foundation. You're not going to go back and keep building the darn foundation. You're going to trust it was done properly by God through Christ. It's set. It's good. Fine. Then we have the things and the stories that have application to us a little bit more directly. Those are our walls and our floors and our ceilings and our doors and our windows in that building. And they make it nice and we think about them every now and then. We hear the door floor creak or we watch the ceiling when we're bored at work. And these things have direct impact on us, but they're not the most important thing that bother us. So when you read scripture, you look at those things that have impact on you. Like when he talks about us forgiving people, that has impact on us. Look, that's the walls and the ceilings and the floor. But there's something even more directly impactful on us. This is the perfection he wants us to move on to. That's when you get into that high-rise building and the water doesn't work in the bathroom. The air conditioning is off in the summer or the furnace is off in the winter. The, uh, uh, the lights are bad. That stuff is immediate. That is immediate stuff. And you notice that Christ is described as a lot of that, that he's the light. He's the water, living water, you see? And so Paul is trying to say, get in the office building of Christianity. Understand you're standing on a foundation that is solid. Get up in that building on the 27th floor and all the things that church playing that go on. Yeah, you bump into it sometimes, but by golly, live by that water, by that air, by the things that keep you comfortable and moving and growing and maturing in Christ. That's what he's telling us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. When Jesus was on the earth, his mother and brothers were calling for him. <coughs> and his actual literal mother and brothers, they call his brothers, could have been cousins, but could have been brothers. I think it was his brothers. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 50 to the crowd who says, your mother and brother are calling for you. 
He says, whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. So he ties a spiritual family to himself there. He says, anyone who does the will of my Father, you notice he includes Father in this. He doesn't say, is my brother, sister, uh, mother, and Father. He doesn't say that. He says, anyone who does the will of them is my brother and sister and mother, is my, that's what Christ said. This statement pushes us way beyond the flesh of his own mother and brothers, way beyond the flesh of the brethren he had in the nation of Israel who were his brethren in the flesh and who, came to his, who he came in the flesh to save, but clearly points to the importance of spiritual regeneration and those who in spiritual regeneration rise up to new life and follow the will of his father. Those who do that, he says, are my true mother, my true sister, my true brother. That's what he says. This caused the writer of Hebrews to also say, for both he that sacrifice and they who are sacrificed are all one. That's talking about Jesus and those who sacrifice for him for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. For which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. We pick on the LDS like mad for them calling Jesus their elder brother. I agree with the insidious nature of why they call him their elder brother. Nevertheless, don't miss the fact that scripture, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, refers to him as our brother as well. Brother how? by a brother in the flesh. He becomes a brother in the flesh and by the spirit we are united with him in true brotherhood under the father. He was a son of God, a child of God, teaching us how to be children of God, okay? So I have cited two references here where Jesus, the son of God, has referred to people as his brethren or his sistren or his mothers and to a group of people he's not ashamed to call brethren. We are also aware that Paul said to those who suffer with him would be joint heirs with him. Joint, and in the Greek, it is equal heirs with him, Christ. Okay? The implication that Jesus, as the Son of God, was an heir of all things his Father had, and that those who pick up their cross and suffer too would be so with him as they walk in the resurrection of his life. The idea lends me to a final thought. I'm going to share it with you awkwardly and see if I can do this justice. We have, in this state at least, three views I want to talk about. There are three views of God, and you can see that this first one is before the earth was made. Just say before we read uh, verse 1 of Genesis 1, we're talking about God before, during, before that time, not after that time. All right. The Trinitarian God, that's this one. One, dos, tres. Separate, co-equal, co-eternal. Co-equal, co-eternal. Uncreated, the three. Make up the one God. You want to dispute that? Dispute all the way. That's how it's described. You can't get around 
the fact that the members of the Trinity are three separate persons as separate, even though James White disputes this, but uh, my, my other friend does not, who uh, Bowman, Rob Bowman says, it is me, it is Jason, it is Mark. We together are completely one, but we're separate persons and we make up one God, okay? The LDS view of the Godhead is that there is one God, the Father, and I'm just blackening this, not because he is black, but because he has a body, according to LDS theology, of flesh and bone. But pre-mortal existence, Jesus did not have a body. He was created. He is not co-eternal. He's not co-equal. And the Holy Spirit, I'm not, that's so vague. We're not really sure about the Holy Spirit. He's going to get a body maybe. He sacrificed to not have one. There's a whole bunch of stuff relative to the LDS Godhood. But the Father has a body of flesh and bones. The Son is going to get one by coming to earth to be like the Father. And the Spirit will perhaps get one in the millennium. I think that's what the teaching is. So we think, wow, very different. Not so different. And you'll see why in a second. The third one is the idea, sorry for the long arms, and for the anthropomorphic drawing. But the other one is God is a spirit. That's what Jesus said. And the words of that God were made flesh in the man Jesus of Nazareth. This was God with us in the man Jesus of Nazareth through the flesh of the woman with the spirit of the father by the Holy Spirit creating this son. The man Jesus, born of a woman, the only human son of God, overcame his flesh as one of us and as the only child of God, taught us how to be children of God. Taught us how to be children of God. Now, when I look at it that way, that makes sense because that's what Jesus is doing from that sense. He's teaching us humans how to be children of God. So let me talk about the results here of earth life of Jesus. Let's go to the Trinitarian model. God himself, we're going to call this one Jesus, as a co-equal, co-eternal, uh, uncreated being, person, came down, now we're on earth life, came down to earth took on a physical body. By doing that, he showed us how God himself would live if he lived on earth. He was not showing us how to be children of God, but was showing us how God would be as a human. Just try to stay with this thinking and consider it. That's a very different thing from Jesus of Nazareth who learned and grew through suffering and obedience and overcame and didn't know all things, that's a very different thing when a co-eternal, co-equal being departs and comes and takes on flesh of a baby in a manger, okay? That being to me is less relatable because it was a person just like me and James and Mark are persons, that person came down and stuffed in that baby's body was that person, Jesus, pre-incarnate, the word, whatever you want to call him, separate and distinct. And then as a baby, he's walking around and he's teaching us 
really what God would be like as a human. That's what we say. It's less admirable. I'm going to say it. It has to, and it has a person doing something for God that other persons did not do. You got to understand that. That's the point I'm trying to make. When we look at ourselves in this, baby Jesus in the manger was doing something none of us have or will ever do, ever do or not even close because the second person co-eternal co-uncreated of the godhead of of god came down and filled that baby and was responsible to his father and the holy spirit as he walked around on earth and that's how we'd have to explain it now to see the similarities between that and the god head in the, in the LDS view, which is really messed up, is that Jesus, the spirit, came down. We're all, by the way, all of us are pre-existent spirits too in this realm. So he's like us. And he comes down and he shows other spirit persons like ourselves how to live as a spirit child of God since we're all spirit children of God. He is setting an example for the rest of us, presumably possessing traits and characteristics that the rest of us do not because of his greatness in the pre-existence and his light and intelligence being greater than ours. So he was the best example. There's a little bit of a difference between him and us, but we all were spirit children of God. Jesus is just the first one in the LDS Godhood. He came down and showed us he had some superior traits. It's it's not as far afield as God himself coming into a baby, but it is, you know, the spirit children can relate to our brother coming down spiritually and taking on a body and living a life that God wants him to live. So he sets that example and he, his walk was closer to our walk than a Trinitarian view because he came to take on unfamiliar flesh and had to overcome like we do in a much closer example than the Trinitarian example. But the end is not so that we can become sons of God. The end result for this is so that we can become gods. You see, so that thing fails. So either way you're going to look at it relative to those, that does not resonate to me as relatable, right? So let's go to the other, and I just call it the other. And you see, I put one being there, and I'm gonna call that one being, like the Jews did, God. I'm going to call him uh, YHWH. That's what I'm going to call him. And the words of God were made flesh in the man Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law. This was God with us. The man Jesus, born of a woman, the only human son of God, overcame his flesh as one of us, and as the only son of God taught us how to be children of God. This guy taught us how God could be a human. This guy taught us how to become gods. But in that model, we are taught how to become children of God because Jesus, God's only son, portrayed that perfectly. Full flesh, God in him. Allowing God to work in a man that was tempted in all things who did not know all things. All who are regenerated by the Spirit, by God, become children. 
as Jesus was at birth. But because we have tainted flesh, we have sin. Jesus had no sin, nor did he commit sin, showing us that we can be children of God in flesh. That is relatable. It is brotherly in flesh, and it answers so many mysteries about Jesus as God. In Jesus, the only Son of God, God was able to reconcile the world to himself. That was in, what was in Jesus from his Father was God, was eternal, was uncreated, was co-equal, because it was God. But there was no person to possess baby Jesus that was a person, either spiritual, first Son of God, to teach us to become gods, or was God himself in a person with the Father and with the Holy Spirit that went into the baby and then taught us how God would be in the flesh. There's a, there's a distinction there. Do you follow Jesus so he can teach? Do you look at him as someone teaching us how, to be, how God would be in the flesh? Do you look at him as someone who would teach us to be gods? Or do you look at him as someone whom God, his word, filled, created that being, and that being just like us, accepts the will of God and learns to overcome the temptations that come to us. And we look to him in that manner. For me, not only do I relate with that God, with Jesus better there, I love him more there. I have more respect and honor for him. I worship him more from that end. From this end, I'm like, what was this guy going to do? Go against, go against the rules? No way. This one brings it down. This one's closer to this by far. But when we talk about not knowing him in the flesh anymore, we have to understand what are we talking about when Jesus came into the flesh. Now, I hope that this opened up some great consternation, questions, rebuttals in you, because that's how we grow. It's by pushing against the stuff we've been taught and seeing if it holds water, and a lot of it does. But some of it might not. This kind of thing still rubs against me the wrong way when I get into passages like this. So let's end there. We'll continue on next week in 2 Corinthians 5. Thoughts, insights, please. Open the door. Please. Nothing? There we go. Hey, Sean, how are you? Good, brother. So I got to say, I, Name, I, please. Dave, Dave, and I was talking to uh, Mary here about how I just can't help myself but comment after every sermon and debating whether or not I should, but I, I felt like I would implode if I didn't this time. So I think, um, number one, there's a lot of things you said throughout the sermon where I was like, hey, man, he's, he's really onto something and this is cool. And uh, to it's be fair, staff. yeah, yeah. And then I, uh, some other things to use the George Carlin term made about as much sense as a two-story outhouse. And I was like, whoa, no, John, come on. And I said, should I say something? She's, yes, he likes this. Yeah. But um, I'll just say that number one, um, all of the pastors and scholars that I've talked to with, with the Trinity, which it, everybody admits is a, is a difficult subject, right? But yeah. would not use the word separate, would use the term distinct. Uh, God is inseparable, nor would they use the word divided. They would use one being 
they would reject, um, any Trinitarian would reject your caricature and your drawing that you have up there of the Trinity. Rob Bowman would not. Well, he's, he's ridiculous. You've told me what he thought before about this, this, and this, like Kareem, James Worthy, and, and Magic Johnson, and that's, that's tritheism. That's, poly, that's not the God of Scripture. So I'm with you in rejecting his view of okay. that. And all I wanted to point out... Um, so when you say distinct, yeah. would you agree with the Trinitarian's view that they're distinct in person? I would say they are three, you, you said some things that are right, that what they, what they believe in, they are three co-eternal, co-equal, distinct persons, uncreated from all eternity. They, they are not each other, they are one God, they are one being. Okay, right. so they they're one, one being, one being, but so the, you, where, how you. you've, sh yeah, yeah, I, and here's where I'm not with you though, and I haven't had a chance to fully flesh this out, and yeah. now we'll do it with with spectators, because there's one er two areas where I got to tell you, you're just off, and I love you. Bring them, man. Yeah, bring them. I want to bring. I'm going to bring them. Okay. So number one, I really do believe that an appropriate understanding of the Trinity does bring those results that you were talking about, right? You have that respect of Jesus because you understand that he really was fully human as well as being fully God. Yeah. So I, I just like, I guess, you to admit that some people with a Trinitarian understanding are going to have those results that, that you would have because they understand that, that he's both fully God as well as fully man. Sure. But the other thing I would just say, and here's the part where I gotta just, I want you to answer me yeah. on this, because a couple times before, people had thought about coming here, and they're like, oh, Sean thinks this. I'm like, no, he doesn't. And then later you'd change to go, just kidding, I, I am a modalist or whatever, right? But here's, my, here's the issue, yeah. is where I've heard you say before that Jesus was not a person, okay? Uh, he, he wasn't a person pre the incarnation. Right really kind of locks you into a corner in a couple ways. I'm not in any corner. Well, you can say that you're not, but it's, it's inconsistent, and I want you to just work through it with me. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm, I no. will totally bow down to the word, no. okay? No. But here's the thing is before he comes, if you get to that, it's really no different than the Jehovah Witness view, than the Mormon view. You're, you're proposing a created Jesus. You've said in here before that Jesus is alpha, he's omega, he's uncreated. So I know where you're going to go next, and here's where he's going to go, everybody, is, and I'm saying this in love, Sean, but, but hey, the word was inside of God, and then he became a person. Well, now you're confronted with the part of God doesn't change. He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6. So I want you to just admit that, and I think you would reject this. You reject that you believe in a created Jesus, right? You don't say that. You say he's Alpha and Omega. And you also, I think, reject that God, God doesn't change, right? He's always been the same. So uh, You know, when we use that phrase, boy, you're well, right. The, it's the scripture. You can well, argue with Malachi. God? I mean, what, how did he die? That's a change to me. How did he grow? That's a change to me. I mean, God changes his mind in the Old Testament. That's a change. We so you do think God changes. That's, that's really where I'm at. I want to know if you believe that. In terms of change, I don't think, just like what you're trying to hit, I don't know if we can understand what that means. I, I'd agree with you there. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know I, if we can. When you're asking me if I think God changes, it says God repented of this thing. That means he changed his mind. But you think he wasn't a person and then he became one. Oh, definitely that. Okay. Definitely okay, that. Okay, that's what I wanted yes. to say. I believe okay. that God, the being, one single God, his word became flesh. That was a change. I his believe that there was, was one single God before. whose word became flesh too, Sean. So I'm trying to figure out where we disagree. Well, wait a minute. If you think he doesn't change, what would you call that? Well, the incarnation, he, he changed in one sense, okay? No, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Come he on. Either, yes or no. He either does or he doesn't. God did, God did not change. Okay. Okay. What did change 
is that Christ now had a full God nature and a fully human nature. And that wasn't a change? The incarnation, you can call it what you want. Well, I wouldn't I'm use the term change. change. Well, I'm going to call it something that doesn't go against scripture, okay? okay. So okay. you can oh, call now, it. Now, now you're starting to get a little testy with me. Uh, you are at, too. Like, I'm you standing are too. on scripture too. Look at, we, you are using semantics with, he, with me. I guess. I'm really, I'm trying to understand your position. You I understand really it clearly. I believe there's one God. Okay. I believe his word became flesh. I relate to Jesus. But why can't you call that a person? That is, it but is I mean, James White, when he, but it James White, when he was here, he, he, he walked you through it in Philippians it is 2. It's the person the, of God. It okay. is the person of God. But he's not three. No. No, he's so, not three. He's one. Right. He's one. <laughs> he's yeah. one, but. But the but, Trinity uses the word three in its description, doesn't it? Here, here's where. Wait, it doesn't it? You got to ask my questions. Does yes. Use, okay. But it's not one plus one plus one equals three. It's one times one, one times one, one times equals one. one. It's a nice little thing, but uh, still. That's how it is. Yeah. I'm just giving you my perspective that. That's not how it is. That's how we interpret the scripture. That's how I interpret it. It's but, not in scripture. But one I just want to know if one. you really do believe. I know the Bowman guy, but, but you're, you're drawing right there isn't how most Trinitarians interpret that. And I do think the good ones end up where you end up in the results. When I look at uh, descriptions of the Trinity, I see this. Don't and you? then you, yes, and then you see the flux capacitor, right? You yeah, see that is not each other. It says God here. Yeah, and you got and all the Father and Son. Yep, and, and then Holy you're going to draw the little not lines. God, not God. But I see three there, brother. But, but then you're not you're not drawing the lines is right. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what this is. Well, they would draw is a line not. from the F to the middle, and is a line not. is not. And then they is would draw. Not. And be fair, do the other lines. There you go. You is, got the is, is once. Is. Now we have the Trinitarian flux capacitor. Right. And the fact that you can even. Call that that tells me yep. you don't get it either. I'm joking about the drawing, not about God. I know. Yeah. I think that that is a sophomoric way to understand one God whose word became flesh. Jesus, the man, overcame his flesh on our behalf, showing we can yep. overcome ours. Yep. I just think this drawing represents what they believe better than your three people next to each other. And I think you yourself realize that i don't know if you're just trying to be funny or not no but, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I mean because in most people's minds dave most people's minds doesn't matter what the scholars have come up with i represent the common man i get it dude this i is love what it. we're thinking brother and when i, I read yeah. uh wait wait a minute when i read books They're by uh, craig hazen and someone else i think it was about a mormon scholar and they say the only difference craig, craig hazen's not a mormon scholar not, i know not craig. craig and hazen craig hazen blomberg okay blomberg okay i went okay Okay. When he wrote with a Christian and a Mormon got together, they uh, say the only difference. How wide the, the divide? Wait a minute. The, how wide the divide? I'm the only you. difference between the two is God has a body of flesh and bone. Now, if they say that, brother, I am closer in my explanation than the flux capacitor. They say that, and these are the scholars representing Christianity. And you know, you know the book, so you must have read I it. I know yourself. the book. I've read it many times. Did they say it? Uh, they do say that, but I don't agree with those authors on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, Dude, I love this. Yeah. I, this I, is hope, I'm not, I hope I'm not go. offending you, Sean. I love what There's you're doing. There's no offense taken. I love that you really are trying to stick to the scripture. Yeah. All I was just trying to say is that eh, I, I think the result where you get, I love where you've ended up with Christ and with your walk and what it means to you. And I'm just yeah. saying, I think a lot of Trinitarians don't have this Bowman understanding, right? And they And they really do get that it's one God. How that is, I don't think anybody in the earth understands. I think you'd agree with me there, right? But, in, but, but when I look at scripture, all it says is the word became flesh. Oh, so well, there's a lot that. of other things it says too. I, 
Or bring in some scriptures if you'd read them. It doesn't say but. the man Jesus became flesh or the person Jesus. I'm just saying the language we get with the Trinity, it does not do justice to me in respecting Jesus for who he was. That filled with the second person, co-eternal, co-created person of the flux capacitor does not inspire me so, with relating. Yeah, and the part where I guess I, guess I found out the one area where, where you and I differ, and that is... You think, I think, I'm totally with you that the word became flesh, right? God took on human form, however you want to call that, yeah. okay? Where, where I'm different and where I think most of the Trinitarians are different is that Christ's ident identity has no beginning. And, and to say that it does... Christ's it, identity? Well, the, uh, the word's identity, okay? The son's identity, Okay, the Christ, son's identity. The son's identity. I'll put it that way. Sorry. But yeah, I'm just saying that that's the difference. You don't believe that that like a, you're kind of like a Jew in one sense in how you look at the Old Testament, right? You really do read yeah. the Bible forward, which I think is yeah. is commendable. But I think you can see the different persons even in the in the Old Testament yeah, in some I, passages I in the Psalms. So much. I yeah. wouldn't see that so much, but so yeah. maybe I am a Jew. Next no, week, dude, I, I didn't call Judaism. you a Jew. Come on, come on, I didn't call you a Jew. I'm just saying you read it forward like, like they do, and I think we have to in some sense. Yeah. All I'm saying is if we have the New Testament understanding and it really does fit together, it should be consistent. But anyways, I love you, Sean. I just wanted to love point you, out the brother. one thing on the Trinity. And I love the fact that we can do this. This is and what I, I've said it before, and I say it again. When, when Sean said he had the most perfect way, <laughs> I kind of chuckled because that's kind of an audacious thing. It but is. I do love that you do this because other people would never do this. And if they did do it, they they'd should. get really mad with me afterwards if I challenged on something. But I, I do love where you've ended up. I, I, I disagree with some I of the terminology you, you used to, to, to describe that. Yeah. Love so. you, brother. Thank you. And I challenge all the churches to do this. Have you? I challenge all the churches to do this and the pastors to come down for their ivory tower and make mistakes. I'm making mistakes. But voice what they think and let the people talk too because they're studying as much as you are and blah, blah, blah. All right, who else? Anybody else? All right, Brother Jason, we'll... I want to. I'm looking forward to uh, next week, where you again go into what you just said at the end of this was beginning of chapter six, where he says, "Was it chapter six, verse one? I don't know if that was where it was. I'm looking in the Bible Hub here, and I don't see it. But you were talking about how we are getting away from doctrine now. How faith, in my mind, this is how I'm seeing it, becomes more of the conveyor to love than a co-law, if that makes sense. Um, after today, I, I, I think it's all love. I think faith is the, is the way to love. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so when we argue about Trinity, all these gospel doctrine topics, uh, the end result is we should all get to love and then the faith as Paul says we move away from that Paul didn't mean for his letters to be persisted to today or did not know it was going to be um, I don't think he did either so everything to the end is is that we need to we need to love and uh, yeah it might be radical to some but I think we can let go of not let go of faith entirely, right. 
but understand that I think love is the higher law. Absolutely. And, and the beautiful thing about that, Jason, is that Dave and I were able to show that in the midst of a heated, definitely a difference, that we can be friends and remain that way. The problem is it's just not that case in the body today. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There we go. Someone check on Eric. This is what my sermons, this is what my sermons do to Eric. <laughs> All right. Let's pray, you guys, and get out of here. Lord, we've been, uh, been blessed with a bounty of uh, blessings this past week that we've kind of taken the time to recognize. But those who are walking with you in your resurrected life know that every day is a look to the heavens and rejoice over what you do. We don't want to be uh, guilty of um, being ungrateful and not recognizing our very breath, our protection, uh, keeping us going, the sun that we warms us and the, the earth that we're on is a product of you and your love for us. And so we just pray that in this Thanksgiving week, this wrap up of it, that we'll continue on for the rest of the year and then the next year into that same attitude of, of having gratitude and love and humility before your a benevolent, kind hand that could wipe us out with a swipe. We uh, pray that we will use our time together, like what we have in our discussion, to think and to really review what we believe. And if it stands on a certain uh, teaching, Trinitarianism, then let it stand. And let it stand in strong faith. But let that love abide with all of us, always. Lord, where I'm failing in that, and I do <laughs> all the time, help me, forgive me for my failure to love, and let me uh, die more to my flesh and live to the Spirit. We pray for those who struggle so much, uh, especially at this time of year. Gracie, we lost our little friend to cancer a couple weeks ago, and the parents and their struggle and difficulty with that during uh, their life. And we pray for that family and her sister. We pray for those who deal with other ailments that their children have and, and difficulties and with parents that are aging and just with the difficulties that ha we have with family. But Lord, help us to look to you as the author and finisher of this faith and that you are cognizant of all things and are bringing together all things according to your goodwill. We pray for Mary Puckett. She's done with chemo and radiation, Warren's mom. We pray that she will have long life. We pray for Robert after his kidney surgery and other cancer treatments. We pray for Liz and her knee and hip and the surgery she's had on those and reoccurring infections, Diana, and all her needs for uh, rehab. Uh, we pray for continued healing with David and his colon cancer, comfort and peace for everyone who's recently lost family and friends, especially this past year and are facing these holidays alone or without them. We pray for uh, South Salt Lake Police Department. They lost a brother officer, Dave Rom, Romrell, last night uh, when he was struck down by a car by fleeing suspects. He leaves a wife and a four-month-old child. And then we uh, pray for anybody else who is suffering this way. You tell us to include each other in prayer. You tell us to mourn uh, with those who mourn. And and uh, to have a meek and broken heart. Help us with our humility. Help us to step forward humbly before this world and to shine that light and to let people know the good news, the great news of Jesus. And so we just pray for this now as we exit here in Jesus' name. Amen.